welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. in our series of the Trinity, and it has been uh, wonderful for me to have the opportunity to unfold this glorious and beautiful doctrine. We have gone from considering an introduction to the Trinity and how we may know the Trinity to looking at this doctrine biblically, proving the doctrine from Old Testament and New Testament digging into it a little bit more and to seeing some of the patterns in the, in the New Testament. We have considered this doctrine, uh, although briefly, historically, uh, with two lectures on the early church and then medieval history, modern history. We touched on a, a very modern controversy uh, around eternal functional subordination. And then we spent two weeks looking at dogmatics, trying to get a proper understanding of a systematic doctrine of the Trinity and how just receiving how it has been uh, carefully handed down to us. And now over these last three lectures, this being the third, uh, we have been considering the vestiges of the Trinity. That is how we may see this doctrine worked out in a triadic form within scripture and within creation. In our last lecture, we considered uh, that there, is a tr there may be a triadic pattern to the triadic patterns. <laughs> and uh, we considered a little bit more the, the patterns that reflect the sun, the incompletion triad, and the redemptive triad, and the fact that the sun uh, is certainly not in and of himself, but in relationship to creation and redemption, there is something unfinished about uh, about, his, about his glory, and it's being seen as preeminent over everything, and that is reflected in certain places in Scripture, but that also that he, uh, in the redemptive triad, he is the one who comes down. 
The Father does not come down. The Holy Spirit uh, is not incarnated, although the Spirit is, is sent. He too has a mission. Uh, and yet it is in Christ's work that we will see a little later in this lecture that we have our return to God. Well, we want to build in this lecture on the gratuitous triad. And as I mentioned in our last lecture, this, the triads here that we'll be talking about reflect the unfolding as well as, as the enfolding nature of the Holy Spirit. And so perhaps it would not come to anybody as a great surprise that if there was one uh, pattern that reflected the Father and there was two patterns that reflected the Son, uh, there are at least three patterns uh, that reflect the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, you can come back with me and check in in, in a few years if, if I have settled on just how many there are that reflect the Holy Spirit. But um, I'm going to do my best to relate what it is that, that I'm seeing in Scripture. And really the goal here is to help you in your Bible reading so that you begin to see some of these things. You'll, you'll have had the experience, I know, in uh, other areas of life where something, oh, it can be as simple as this. It can be as simple as you're looking for a certain sort of, uh, of building or a certain service that you've never considered before, you've never needed before. And now as you go you know, throughout town in different areas, now all of a sudden you see, you see this thing everywhere. Right? I'm sure you've had that experience. Or maybe it's you know, something in scripture where you didn't see something before, but now you're seeing it and, and now you start to see it all over. And that is really what we want, what we're aiming at. We want to understand certain patterns, certain things in scripture so that as we read scripture, and as we relate to God in our prayer, and as we even look at the world outside of us, that we begin to see through these sort of triadic Trinitarian eyes. Well, last, uh, or two weeks ago, I, I mentioned the gratuitous triad. And it, it occurred to me today as I was building this out um, that I maybe should have chosen a different word. Uh, I'm going to use it anyways today. You'll see in a minute why I should have used, maybe should have used a different word because I'm going to be calling, um, as I unfold this, this gratuitous aspect of the Holy Spirit, uh, we're going to see some sort of some subsets of this. And one of them is actually going to use the word gratuitous, which might be a little bit uh, confusing. Uh, sometimes this happens if you're building out some new, new things that others haven't, at least that I have seen others haven't given me vocabulary for, so you're, you're forced to try to uh, get vocabulary for it to express yourself in terms that you feel reflect what you're seeing in Scripture. But if you recall, uh, and, and again, we're, we were in Genesis chapter 1, and we, we saw that on the third and sixth days, which reflect the Holy Spirit uh, in a certain way, that there was, unlike the, the previous days of creation, there was two things that God did on these days. And so we remarked that there was, this reflected sort of the, the multifaceted or gratuitous nature of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to build on that this evening, and I want to mention three aspects of this gratuitous nature 
that we see uh, on these days, on days three and six. So if, if you're with me uh, and, and you want to follow along in the book of Genesis, turn to Genesis chapter one. And it is on the third day that we see Yeah, that we see in verse 9, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So there's the first thing that God does on the third day. But then it continues, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, Plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. You'll recall that on the sixth day, we won't read it, that God created the, the beasts, but then also he then uh, proceeded to create man in his image. And so you've got these two things, and I want to mention three things about this the first is, is simply to remark, uh, again, this is, this is normative, is simply to remark that there is a two-ness to the third thing that equals then four. Okay, I'll repeat that. That if you're looking at the first three days, very simple actually, maybe, maybe you got confused there for a second, very simple. If you have the first three days, there are four things that you see in a certain sense created on, the, on the, those first three days. And it's the same case with the second three days, in which there's the filling of those, those spheres on the first three days. There are four things, okay? So, what you see is that in this Holy Spirit perspective, that there is a fourness. A fourness, okay? We're gonna come to that. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see is that in both cases, third day and sixth day, the second thing of the two is greater than the first. It's greater than the first. And uh, this is the most clear, certainly, on day six, in which man, the creation of man follows the creation of the beasts. The third thing that is worth noting is that in both cases, I believe, although it maybe is the most clear with, uh, with day three, that in this two-ness, you have, with the second of this two-ness, you have an unfolding that prefigures what is to come. All right? So the earth sprouting vegetation as the last element of the first three days prefigures the filling of the spheres that will, that will take place in the second set of three days. Days four to six. I think this is also the case with, with day six, and man being created in God's image, which prefigures the kingdom and the dominion that man is to have under God over all things, and I think also, in a certain sense, the rest or the completion. God is done when he creates man and, and woman. All right? and, and I say, I, I add on woman, because even though man is normative, there's an important sense 
that woman, because she is created last, she picks up on this greater pattern. That there is a sense in which, in the relationship between man and woman, there is a sense in which man is, I'm going to use this word because I'm going to make it right in a second. Man is greater because he has the primacy and the normativity. But there is a sense in which woman is greater because she is created last as the glory of man and as the pinnacle of all of God's creation. Right? So there's, a, there's an interesting asymmetry to the fact that, that there's a sense in which man has his particular glory and his primacy, but the woman has her particular glory and her preeminence. Again, I think this is a Trinitarian pattern. You could, you could reflect on this and how this uh, echoes the father's relationship to the son. So getting back to uh, this gratuitous triad, we note three things. First of all, the tunis of the third thing, which ultimately means there are four things. Second of all, that the, the second of the two things is higher or greater. And thirdly, you've got this unfolding. All right? So let me make some comments about each one of these things, uh, because each one of these are subsets of this gratuitous pattern, or you could call them uh, triads in their own right, or, or Trinitarian patterns in their own right. Okay, so first of all, we need to note what I will call, and again, I'm stating some things where I hope you, you are understanding that <laughs> there's, there's limited senses in which we're, we're saying certain things, okay? So I'm going to say this, that there's a sense in which there is a forness to God. There's a sense in which there is a forness to God, okay? Do not say that Pastor Paul told you that there are four persons in the Trinity. That is not what I am saying. I repudiate the idea fully. Nevertheless, there is a certain foreness to God. And again, this is predicated on the fact that in the Holy Spirit, there is both an unfolding Father, Son, Holy Spirit within that taxis, that normative order, that processional order, and an enfolding whereby the Holy Spirit may be seen to be between the Father and the Son. And I, I suggested in the past I think this holds uh, that, I think this is predicated upon the two names of the Holy Spirit, in fact. Now, this leads to the fact that you have, I believe, within the triune God himself, a foreness that prefigures creation. This does not mean that creation is necessary. God himself alone is necessary. But I think we could, I think we could say that creation is inevitable based on who God is in his triune nature. Let me suggest that there are at least three ways in which creation is, I would say, inevitable. Yes, this has a Trinitarian shape. One is the nature of the Father, as the fount of all things, whom Bavink states is eternally fecund. The Father, think about this. 
he bears or generates, of course, eternally, nothing less than God himself. Eternally. It's remarkable. And so we might say, based on that, how could this full, fecund, eternally generating God, is it not fitting, at least, that he should create? There should be more that comes from him, if it were possible that there is more that would come from him. Uh, we might look to the sun and say that it is fitting, based on who the sun is and his nature, as the object and the image of the father. Father, that it is, it is fitting that creation be a reflection, a particular reflection of the sun, and that it be given to the Son as the Son's blessing and particular glory. So if the Father who has given to his Son everything in the eternal generation, is it not fitting that he should create to give to his Son? But I think also, and getting now back to this... <laughs> What I'm saying is the for, this foreness of God, to use that uh, very limited term, is I think that because the, the Holy Spirit is the unfolding of God, and even though he is the quote-unquote end of the Trinity, if you will, that he should unfold outward into creation, not in a pantheistic way, but in a way that brings glory to the Father by enfolding creation back into God under Christ. Of course, that's what we see in, in the scriptures. All things are from him, through him, to him. So, I believe there's a certain foreness to God that is reflected in the creation. Um, this is why, for instance, you have uh, four as the number of creation. There are four corners of the earth, four, four compass points. You have the four winds. This is also why seven is the complete number. Because it's the number of the Trinity plus the number of creation. If somebody ever asks you, are there any other worlds? Are there any other habitable worlds, something like ours? I think the answer is no, and there's lots of ways you could prove it, but I think one of the ways you could answer it is just by saying no, because three plus four equals seven. It's done. You've got the Trinity, the triune God, you've got the completion of, of creation in, in, in four, and you've got this, this perfect complete number in seven. I'm being a little bit facetious, but only a little bit. We also know that, that some of the other symbolic numbers would relate to these numbers 3 and 4. So, for instance, 3 plus 4 equals 7, but 3 plus 4 plus 3, which would be a return back to God, potentially, is the number 10. 3 times 4 is 12. So you've got, you've got some... You've got some um, 
some interesting numerical patterns and symbolism that come from considering the, that which really ultimately go back to this proto-foreness of God. Maybe I'll use that word, all right? This idea or this, this proto-creative, proto-creation that's inherent within the triune God. Not as necessary, but as something that perhaps is inevitable, certainly fitting. You could safely use the word fitting. I'll be so bold as to use the word inevitable. Now, there's a foreness. Now let's consider a second aspect, and uh, that is the necessary gratuitous pattern. The necessary gratuitous pattern. Now again, I mentioned it near the beginning that uh, maybe I should have used a different word for this, you know, this gratuitous triad because now I'm using this word again, and I feel I do need to use the word here because what we see within, I believe, even the patterns of Genesis chapter 1, but we see this reflected in a number of other areas, is that there is some asymmetry to, the, to sometimes the two-ness or the manifoldness that becomes apparent in the Holy Spirit part of a pattern, of a triadic pattern. Um, now, sometimes this pattern is represented by simple couplets. You sometimes don't get a full sort of four-part pattern where you'll get, you know, the first three, you know, the first part of the pattern refers to the Father, the second one refers to the Son, actually refers probably is too strong of a word. Uh, the first part reflects the Father, the second part reflects the Son, and then the third part with two parts reflects the Holy Spirit with one of them being necessary and one of them being gratuitous. Sometimes I think you will get in the scriptures merely this necessary gratuitous pattern. But I think it's a reflection of the Trinity. It may also be a reflection to some degree of the Father and the Son, perhaps. But let me give you a few of these, all right? Uh, death and resurrection. Because of the fall of man, death is necessary. Resurrection is gratuitous. Faith and works. Faith is necessary. Works are, are gratuitous. It, it's, what, it's what shines forth what faith really is. Justification and sanctification. Although I, I may say a little bit more about that uh, later. Uh, creation and redemption. Creation and redemption is a great necessary gratuitous pattern. God has created. He doesn't have to save. God could have absolutely let mankind drown in their damnation that they earned for themselves. But God is gratuitous in his work of redemption. Work and rest, I think, is, is, bears this necessary gratuitous pattern. Um, regeneration sanctification, I think, bears this necessary gratuitous pattern. Now, somebody said, well, you've... Somebody may have just thought to themselves, well, you've already used the word sanctification. No, keep in mind that these, these patterns, they overlap one another in different ways as they reflect different things, depending on what your perspective is. All right? Repent and be baptized, I believe, is this kind of necessary gratuitous pattern. 
Um, yeah, we could keep going. Uh, let me mention one example. Oh, I, I forgot to mention what I, I think is, is one of the most used ones. And that is grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there you do have a full four-part pattern. It's very short, very concise. But you've got these things coming from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've got this peace that we desperately need. We have to have that reconciliation with God to have any relationship with him. But we also have the gratuitousness, the abundance of his grace. Uh, John 17, verses 1 to 2, seems to me to bear this pattern. So, Lord Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven. Remember, this is, this is the perspective that anybody on earth has. I have to look up to heaven. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, right, you're out, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So you've got the Father here, you've got the Son, since you have given him authority over all flesh. This is what has been granted to the Son. And this, this first part is the necessary part. You've given him authority over all flesh, but now here is the gratuitousness of it, the grace of it, to give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. And you'll see this pattern. You'll begin to see this pattern in a lot of different places. Uh, often, the um, kind of bearing the, you know, these two ideas will work together, this uh, the, the foreness and the necessary gratuitous pattern, and you'll start to see this, this, uh, this pattern come out in a few different places. Lastly, I want to mention this unfolding pattern. All right? And in this aspect, the, the last part of the triad unfolds something newer and greater. Now, this, this has a, uh, several different forms. At times, the third element in a triad will actually be the first in a new set of three. So they will actually be nested, one within the other. Now, sometimes it's slightly more complex than that. Um, you know, the, the way this, this, uh, this works. But let's, let's take a look at uh, a couple of them. Let's go, to, let's go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Exodus 3, 14. Now, this is a, this is a very important part of Scripture. It, it seems to me, in my reading and and looking for these, these triads, these patterns in Scripture, it seems to be that the more important a passage is or the more elevated language it is. Sometimes you can tell this, where you get this kind of this elevated language, at which you, you have here. God is saying who he is, his name, to Moses. The more likely there are to be these Trinitarian patterns. That's, that's my experience. But here we see, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this, this to the people of Israel, the Lord, 
the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, which one of those three things is God's name that he's referring to at the end of chapter, of, at the end of verse 15? Well, it's all three. God mentions three names here. I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. And, and that reflects the sub. And then you've got, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, you've got this third name here, the Lord. So you've got, you've got that You've got that triad, but then you also have, it seems to me, two more triads. You've got the Lord, the God of your fathers, and then as in the last place, in the third place of this triad, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But then the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is its own triad. So you've got three nested triads. I mean, whether they're fully nested or not, you've got three different interrelated triads here. Now, with some of them, I suggested that the first one is, I think, pretty clearly Trinitarian. Uh, with some of these triads, you might hum and haw about whether, you know, whether they are Trinitarian or not. Uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is certainly a Trinitarian triad. There is no question in my mind that those three patriarchs have bear a Trinitarian sort of mark to them, uh, with Abraham being the, the father of faith, the, the one to whom was given the, uh, the covenant. You've got Isaac as the beloved son, the son of promise, certainly reflecting the son. And then you've got the God of Jacob, who, Jacob, who, who is this unfolding out into an entire nation of 12. So you've got these, some of these nested triads here. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 1. It seems to me that John as a writer is probably the most triadic uh, writer, at least in the New Testament. The book of Genesis is heavily triadic as well. Uh, but the book of, uh, of John and Revelation... And in, yeah, and even the epistles of John, there's many triads cont uh, contained in here. So, again, some of these triads may be specifically Trinitarian. Some of them you, you might think, well, eh, I'm having a hard time seeing sort of that Trinitarian imprint, but they're certainly triadic, at least in a, you know, this three-part aspect that has a them, but also this three-part distinction. So for, in, for instance, you've got uh, grace to you, verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So you've got, you've got a triad there, him who is and who was and who is to come. Uh, and then you've got this forming this other triad, and it's interesting because it's actually the redemptive triad, because then you've got the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, right? So there you've got the Father, Spirit, and Son pattern, the redemptive pattern. Um, and then you've got 
is going to talk about Christ. He's three things. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the on earth. There you have a hint of the incompletion triad. He's the faithful witness, but he's the firstborn of the dead. There was something sort of incomplete that needed to happen there. There was there, that redemption aspect comes in that second place. The firstborn of the dead, and now the ruler of the kings on earth. There's this fulfillment uh, there in that third place that reflects the Holy Spirit. Um, and there, there may be more, you know, uh, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. That may be triadic and trinitarian. Uh, there's, there's so much here that, would, that you, could, you could begin to, to bring out. Um, we also see that there are false triads in Revelation. So, for instance, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet are a perverse triad. So they certainly reflect the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this perverse way. But we also see that, for instance, concerning the beast, it talks about the beast and its image and the number of its name. That, too, is probably a uh, a sort of a perverse Trinitarian triad. So we see this unfolding nature to the gratuitous triad in these, in these nested triads that occur in Scripture. And I think this is reflected even in something, uh, something like how God has created families. That a man normatively and, and primarily takes a wife to himself, the two become one flesh, and under God's blessing, again, normatively, <laughs> there is, there's a child that issues forth in the blessing of God, but that's not the end. That child then, you know, if he's a man, takes, takes a woman to be his wife, and, he, and there's, you, you get this unfolding of the generations in a way that is figured in man as the image of God that is not the case for angels. Angels, they don't procreate. They don't build civilizations. They don't, they don't have this unfolding aspect to them, which is that mark of the Trinity. Now, we need to mention one other triad, and that is the return triad. All right? And this is a reflection. I mentioned that there is a Trinitarian uh, Trinitarian sort of triadic system to these triads. And here we have this aspect of enfolding. We've talked about the unfolding. Now we're going to talk about the enfolding and talk about the return triad. Because if in the redemptive triad, you've got the Father, Holy Spirit, Son. All right? And that's certainly what we see in, in Christ's incarnation. Holy Spirit comes upon Mary Jesus Christ is conceived. His baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, and he is empowered. In the resurrection, the Holy Spirit does this work of resurrecting the Son. So, we've got this, but now we understand that Christ, in this re return triad, Christ has come low to bring us back to God. All right, and this return triad is Son Holy Spirit, Father. Son, Holy Spirit, Father. Well, one of the clearest places we see this uh, in the redemptive history of the scriptures is 
is just seeing that Christ returns to heaven and then he sends a spirit at Pentecost. And you, you get in this, um, in, in Acts and everything that follows, you have the work of the Holy Spirit in order to bring about the, yes, the glory of the Son, but really to bring us back to, to God and the fulfillment of all of uh, God, or you could even say the Father's purposes. So I think that one of the ways we could read the scriptures is, by, is actually by this um, redemptive return triad that I believe that in the, that you have in the Pentateuch a focus on the Father, maybe especially in, of course, especially in the creative act in, in creation itself. And then you have the, the work of the, of the prophets, right? The law and the prophets. In the prophets, you've got the work of the Holy Spirit. And then you have the coming of the Son in the Gospels and in the Incarnation. And then as the Son returns, again, you have the work of the Holy Spirit, which I think you could probably, I mean, certainly you would say Acts, but probably getting into the epistles as well. And then you've got the summation of all things, uh, perhaps chiefly in the book of Revelation. So I think you, we could even have a kind of a, an understanding or a system of overview of the scriptures by putting together this redemptive and return triad. So one of the places I think this is most beautifully seen is in John 17. So in John 17, you can turn back there. In John 17, we've got the fact that the son, and I think I've mentioned this before in this lecture series, but I think it's John 17 really is one of several places, maybe others being the book of Revelation or Genesis 1, that really kind of unlocks some of this triadic thinking for us. Where you've got the fact that the Father sends the Son, the Son accomplishes the work for which he is sent, and then he now gives the Holy Spirit for that unfolding work through which the, uh, the, the disciples go out into the world, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and, and then and, and do the work of bringing in the kingdom. So there's the unfolding. But then you also have the infolding. That the, the father sends the son. And the son has given his name. And uh, manifested the glory of the father to the people whom the father gave to the son. And now, as, they, as the son returns to the father, we are caught up with him and, and join the triune God now. Um, yeah, let me read from verse 20 and following. You'll, you'll see some hints of this in, in different places here. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So you get this return triad. And some of the most famous triads in Scripture are this return triad. 
faith, hope, and love. That's the return triad. You have to start with faith. But then there's this hope that we have and what will be, it's still coming, it's still to be fulfilled. Reflecting the Holy Spirit. But then you've got that final fullness and normativity of, of the love of the Father over all things. And the greatest of these is love. Right? Whenever you, whenever you hear something like that, whenever you, you hear or see something as, as being, you know, okay, there's, there's a unity of three things, but one of them somehow is greater. Okay, that's your signal that that's, that's probably reflective of the Father in some way. All right? Prophet, priest, and king. That's probably the return triad. You've got the work of being the prophet in the world. This is, this is Christ's own ministry. He started by being a prophet. Preeminently, he was a preacher. Before he went to the cross, he preached the gospel. Then he went to the cross to, to do that priestly work. Now, that's not to say that there was no aspects of his, of his priestly office, you know, in his preaching or in the other things he did. But there is certainly an emphasis. And then he ascended as king. And he's waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Right? So it starts with this, with this world, this prophetic work. And, and this really is our work as well. We, we preach in the world. We have to start with that. And then, but then there's this aspect, uh, if I'm relating this to outward, inward, upward. Right? You, this prophet is this outward aspect. Priest is this inward aspect. Uh, to some degree, and then the king is this upward aspect. Uh, let me read. Yeah, let me just mention in closing several other triads that I think some of them from some of them biblical triads, some of them systematic triads. Um, so I believe the reverse triad is contained in the triad of three great things concerning our salvation. Justification, sanctification, and adoption. I believe that justification comes first. Sanctification is that ongoing work, at least it's emphasized in that. I could say more about this, but I'm just going to treat this at a very sort of surface level here. And then adoption represents, if you read Romans 8, there's a very, very close association between adoption and glory. And we know that, of course, that adoption is something that reflects the father's relationship with his own son. So it, it does reflect the father. Justification, sanctification, and adoption. I think that there's a triad um, of, of sin being against God's person. That would be that normative aspect. So this is a processional triad now against God's person, against God's principles, and against God's precepts. God's person, God's principles, God's precepts. And I believe that when we do sin, that each one of those aspects has a bearing out in, um, against God's precepts in guilt, against God's principles in shame, and against God's person in fear. I actually believe that that connects then with justification, sanctification, and adoption. Justification uh, 
largely dealing with guilt, sanctification largely dealing with shame, adoption largely dealing with fear. Uh, in the Ten Commandments, the first three the first three commandments, I believe, are triadic. They're God. No idols. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. I believe that, that represents the processional triad. Father, Son, Spirit. A reflection of that. I could build that out a little bit more, but I'll, I'm just quickly going over that. Um, interestingly, when it comes to the kings of Israel, if you've ever, if you've ever done studies in the, the kings of Israel, you'll note that when it comes to a reflection on their lives biographically, that the tend to point out certain things over and over again. So for instance, the fact if somebody was a good king, they did three things. They upheld the law. And by that, I mean that they, they, they promulgated the law. They made sure the law was taught, right? Not just that they obeyed God himself. They upheld the law. They built things in the world. Or sorry, they, they built projects for God's people, and they engaged in warfare with the world. That's a processional triad. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Or upwards, inwards, outwards. Maybe, maybe the latter being maybe a little easier to see. First um, John 5, 6 to 9, when it talks about there are three that testify. Triadic. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. That's a processional triad. Reflecting Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Reflecting upwards, inwards, outwards. I'll close by mentioning the Lord's Prayer. Lord's Prayer may be triadic in multiple ways. I think that there's one triad in the entire outline. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, reflecting the Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven, reflecting the Son. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Reflecting the Holy Spirit and how he leads and, and gives us what we need. That unfolding of all the different aspects, the superabundance of the Holy Spirit. But as someone emailed me this last week, stated there's also a triad in the, the three things that are given to us. Give us this day our daily bread representing the, the Father and what he provides for us. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. It is Christ in whom we have forgiveness and, and really an echo of that incompletion triad, right? Because there's something there that's not quite right that is, is come to fulfillment in Christ. And lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So, in closing, may these triads, this Trinitarian thinking that I have done my best to unfold, may it 
cause you to explore more the depths of God. May it cause you to think of the Holy Spirit, sorry, of the, of the Trinity, not predominantly as a mathematical formula or as a creed to make sure that you've got your, you know, your T's crossed and your I's dotted in just the right way, although I have impressed upon you that, that there's some aspect of that being important. But may the doctrine of the Trinity be your wonder and your joy, that which you explore this great God whose depths are, are unknown, that cannot be fully fathomed, and yet in which we can, we can plumb and explore and wonder in. And may it impact your experience of our God. I pray that this would inform your prayers, inform your relationship with God in very practical ways, even though we've done a lot of sort of high-level work, trickle-down effect in your life is that you would know God in a greater way.